don't be afraid that you don't know everything. You don't need to know everything. That's not what being a leader necessarily is reliant on. You need to take the time to learn about your team and learn where their expertise sits and what each of those individuals might contribute so that you can make the most of what they can contribute. Welcome to the Frontline to Boardroom podcast, where we share the wisdom, knowledge and experience of leaders who've served in the military and then taken those hard-won leadership lessons into the corporate world. Hi, I'm your host, Martin Brooker. Looking forward to sharing with you the stories of their lived experiences, warts and all, from leading men and women in harm's way, all the way to the corporate boardroom and beyond. Let's get started. Well, my guest today is Pam Price. She served in the Royal Australian Navy as an instructor officer, and at the time she joined, she was just one of five female instructors. Pam's early Navy career involved technical training across engineering and wine warfare, but recognising early that her career interests were broader than instruction and training, Pam chose to pursue opportunities outside that technical training field, including the development of leadership and management curriculum, staff roles in procurement and project management, Leaving the Navy after almost 20 years' service in uniform, Pam has had one of the most successful careers in professional services, project management and driving business transformation in a very different mixture of business sectors. With all of that experience, Pam is now consulting as a strategic business advisor in defence industry, the learning and development sector, as well as the health sector. What I loved about our conversation was the perspective that Pam brought with regards to being a woman in a male-dominated culture the diversity of her career path and the lessons learned, and then the principles she's applying to leading at the strategic level now. Let's jump right in. Well, Pam Price, welcome to the Frontline to Boardroom podcast. It's great to have you on the show. Thanks, Martin. Happy to be here. Excellent. Well, look, the question I always ask at the beginning of the podcast is, how did you end up joining the Royal Australian Navy? So I grew up in country Queensland, country Western Australia, and uh, my dad, who is my idol in life and we're very close, he'd spent some time in the Navy and um, it was just one of those things. I always had an inherent interest in the services and wanting to join, you know, the Navy. And, and it wasn't so much that I had any great desire to drive ships or fly planes because in the 70s and early 80s, women couldn't do that in the services anyway. That wasn't what we joined to do. But, and I don't consider myself a feminist, but I've always had this desire to try and do things a little different or to try and do things that weren't considered to be the norm. And the Navy was one of those things. Funnily enough, I I finished high school and at the time I was going through high school as a female, the only way you could join the Navy as an officer, which is what I wanted to do, was under a cadet system and I wasn't old enough to do that. So I went to university and in the time that I was studying, um, I actually... (laughs) I did a degree in science and had a scholarship with BHP. So I actually worked in the coal mines and was interested in staying in that career and had looked to see if there were some options there. But again, at that time, this is going to sound, sound, you know, really quite woe is me, but at that time they weren't taking on females as cadet mine managers. So I went back to look at the Navy as an option and in the intervening period, some of the things had changed there and I had an opportunity to join as a direct entry officer. 
So it, it was very much one of those, I didn't have a direct view of what being in the Navy was going to be about. It was an opportunity to do something different, to do something that was maybe pushing what was at the time considered to be the norm for young women, really. Um, and and that's you know that's what led me led me to joining the navy. <laughs> yeah. So you talked about your father. What influence did he have on your thinking about leadership, perhaps, or or that career in the in the following in his footsteps, effectively in the navy? My dad was in the navy as a sailor, and I think one of the things that was really sort of powerful to me was the skill sets that actually came out of being in the Navy and the exposure to not just from a work point of view but to to life more generally. And he certainly instilled in us the you can do whatever you want to do in life. Don't, don't let... Uh, don't let the norm bound you. Don't feel that because other people aren't doing it doesn't mean that you can't do it. And even the bizarre things that my siblings and I might have come up with, my dad was always behind us in have a go, have a go, see what sort of happens. And I think that level of guidance without constraint is certainly something that I found has come into my leadership style as well. I would never consider myself from a a leadership and management point of view to be a micromanager or a constraining manager. You know, I genuinely believe in giving people their boundaries, but letting them actually discover within those boundaries where their skill sets lie, what they can contribute to the organisation, because everyone's got something to contribute, is my view. And I, I I definitely feel I got that, you know, from my dad. Try anything. Try anything. Yeah. So you joined as a direct entry officer with a science degree behind you. And that was to be an education officer, was that right, in the yeah. in the Navy? And so what what did that mean in terms of a career path for your time of service in the Navy? I think you need to sort of put a little bit of it into the timing context. So I joined in 1983. And at the time, as a uh, female officer, I didn't join the Royal Australian Navy. I joined the Women's Royal Australian Naval Service, and that's what's on my commission. So I've forgotten the time frame in which that changed over, actually, now that you say that. You know, at the time I joined, we weren't even legally part of the Royal Australian Navy. We were the Women's Royal Australian Naval Service. And so that had its own legislative constraints in terms of what, what we could do. And I was one of five female technical trainers in, in the education corps. And even that was interesting in as much that um, the Navy and the organization as a whole was still trying to work out what to do with this more broadly. And one of my first postings was to HMAS Marimba, the apprentice training establishment that was in Western Sydney at the time. And I was the first female instructor out there. So that in itself was interesting. And I joined out there. I posted in at the same time the Navy brought in its first two female apprentices. And, you know, just, just to put it into context, even simple things like, well, we need to have extracurricular activities for the females. We had, I think, probably about eight women on the base so the only extracurricular activity they could come up with was a basketball team because you only needed five people. <laughs> so, so it was a really sort of interesting. Not netball, not netball. We, didn't, we didn't have enough women to have a netball team. 
So, but I say that was interesting because it also presented an opportunity in that being at that, you know, that forefront, the opportunities presented to genuinely lead and manage where some of this was going because there was just a, uh, there was a void, I guess, of, of how to manage women, how to provide those sort of career opportunities, what to do with these people as they they came through. And, you know, I feel I really took advantage of that, albeit there was a career path from a technical education perspective that I stuck with for the first sort of couple of years. I took any opportunity that was presented to me and I I found that – you know, if you are willing to, again, coming back to what my dad always said, if you're willing to have a go at things, it's amazing what you can learn and what you can sort of explore. And that breadth of experience, I think, really then does help from a from a leadership and a management point of view because you may not be an expert in everything, but the breadth of exposure helps you then deal with people who are experts in those other areas. So, Albeit the traditional career path was moving through a uh, instructional role into more course management, into um, analysis and design work in the training field. I did all of those things, but I also took the opportunity. Navy's 75th anniversary was in 1986. I got asked, would I like to go to Queensland to manage public relations? Sure, I can spell PR. I'll have a go at that. <laughs> um, so things like that. I, I was just sort of really open to trying all of those things. And as a result of that, my career through the Navy was certainly not what I would have considered to be a traditional career pathway for an education officer because I, I veered off as the opportunities presented to really, I guess, fill my experiential toolbox with, you know, whatever I could get my hands on really. Yeah. Those early days at what was that actually like? I mean, it sounds like there were opportunities, but but were there barriers as well that you bumped up against that you had to sort of dig deep on? Or? Yeah, there, there certainly were. And uh, I worked with some amazing people in the Navy over the years. And I think you've also, again, have to put the timing into context. Um, I was talking to um, a young woman just sort of recently and you forget how quickly and how much has changed in that time frame. I don't consider myself old, but you know, I'm sure some people do <laughs> consider me old. You know. Me, me either. I'm not. We're a similar age, actually. And no. <laughs> but you know, when I joined the Navy as a 21 year old, you know, I thought somebody who was pushing 60 was old. And how could they possibly know what it was like to be, you know, to be that age? Well, now I'm that person that's that's you know pushing the 60. And but I was saying to this young person the other day, you you lose sight sometimes just how much has changed and how far we have come. And the example I used with this person, which this is such a female example, so apologies, Martin, and to anybody else that's listening, but the example I used was that when I joined the Navy as a female officer, our uniform only involved dresses and skirts. We, we didn't have trousers. We had to wear stockings all the time. That was sort of part of the uniform. And even so simple things like, well, you get an opportunity to go visit a ship because keeping in mind legislatively we weren't allowed to go to sea for any length of time then. But if you got an opportunity to, to visit a ship, what did you wear? You can't go, you know, up and down ladders in a 
white dress with your stockings on underneath. So, so some of the, some of the barriers were even just some of those simple physical barriers. How do you fit in with everybody else doing everything else that, that your peers could do when you weren't even, you know, physically equipped to do that? So I, I look around now and just see how, how practical the uniforms are for women in the services and think, you know, they may take it for granted, but there were quite a few of us that bumped up at that along the way just to even get some of those simple practical things, you know, in place. And um, uh, and from a career progression point of view, it was just before I joined the Navy, they changed the legislation to actually allow you to stay in service once you got married. But even when I had children, I had to seek permission request to stay in the service after my children were born. So it wasn't a fait accompli. You, you know, you needed to get permission for that. So all of those sorts of things really were quite they may sound small, but they mounted to be just an interesting navigation through careers to be considered yeah. on par with, you know, with other peers, yeah. And effectively it was a different landscape for a woman in the service versus a man with all of those kind of constraints. And it's interesting to think that was just less than 40 years ago. I know, and, and that's what I mean. We've come so far, but you, you forget sometimes. And please, I don't mean that to say that there isn't more to be done and not just for, for women, but, um, you know, it's very topical at the moment, obviously, with the Veteran Suicide um, Royal Commission on. There's so much more to be done to provide a safe and productive workplace for, for everybody. But I just, you know, make the comment that lots changed. Yeah, we might come back to some of that. Going back to those that early career in the Navy, you had some really interesting roles sort of, as you said, you went sideways sometimes from, from being an education officer and had a number of key roles, I think, in Canberra and uh, in sort of higher levels with the Navy headquarters and the command. Yeah, I... um I had an opportunity to come to Canberra and again, it was to do something different. So I was military staff officer for the, the role at the time was the chief of naval materiel division. And that gave me an opportunity to really be exposed to the whole procurement and acquisition area and project management. And, and frankly, that gave me a, a love of project management more generally. It Again, it was one of those roles that it exposed to me a lot of the behind-the-scenes work that actually happens. And I think that's something else that, you know, as I think about it, that I really sort of took into my civilian roles and into broader leadership roles in that as well is that it's very easy to be seduced by the shiny, pointy end of what happens in a business or an organisation. And yet, that doesn't work without the, a solid foundation of the support and enabling functions that sit behind it. And certainly from a defence point of view, the acquisition organisation is absolutely one of those. You know, you can have the best people in the world, but if they don't have the right equipment and, you know, the right sort of systems in place to actually utilise those skill sets, then, you know, they're, they're not getting anywhere. That was a really interesting opportunity for me to get exposed to that because it was it was more than just the mechanics of acquisition that I saw there. It was also the political aspects that sat behind it. So the the more strategic view of what it was that defence was 
uh, preparing for at certain times and I you know I still sort of see that now and also where some of the interesting political agendas might influence where defense is going and again outside of defense those same characteristics show up in in non-defense organizations as well there is always something that's sitting behind what might be seen more visibly by the public that could be driving, you know, the the agenda that isn't always obvious to everyone out there. And that goes for people that are, you know, within the organisation as well. You you only see what you see, you only know what you get exposed to. And I found it really interesting from the perspective of better understanding what may in the past have looked to be, frankly, a stupid decision to me was actually being made. And that to me, that, that was really interesting. That got me really thinking about the broader opportunities in general management because I like to know why things are happening. I like to know what's going on. And, you know, I, I like my team to understand why they're doing things within the realms of security or need to know basis. And that was probably one of the first times that I really felt like I knew what was happening in the Navy and why it was happening. Yeah, it's sort of, um, it's that almost transition point and opportunity to actually, um, expand our view of actually what goes on in an organization to understand it both width and I guess in depth as well. Absolutely. Yeah. So what did, what reflecting back on that, what do you think were some of the leadership lessons you learned in that environment in the Navy headquarters dealing with the acquisition of new capability and? along that career path in that particular point in time? A couple of things, um, both on a a broader organisational level and on a more personal level, and I'll I'll start with the organisational level first, and that is how important it is to actually have, as, you know, blasé as we are about it at times, but why it's so important to have that vision and mission and actually have a strategy and understand why you're going somewhere where you're going and why you're going there and ensuring that that's articulated in a way that the whole team, you know, is thinking the same thing. You know, we were, I know Martin, you and I have talked before about books and I, you know, mentioned the Jim Collins books, Good to Great, Built to Last. And he always talked about getting the right people on the bus. Well, people only get on the bus if they know where the bus is going. And that understanding, you know, the the vision and the mission and being able to articulate that in a strategy that you can cascade down to a point that everyone in your team understands what they're contributing, that was something that uh, I felt those opportunities in Canberra really revealed to me. And, And I remember when I was working at, again, in Canberra in Naval Officers Postings, um, subsequent to that, so in the personnel area, I had a young lieutenant come work for me and he made a comment to me, he said, you know, when I was at sea, I used to think people in Canberra had no idea what they were doing. You know, how could they possibly know what they're doing? They're asking us to do the most ridiculous things. He said, now I'm here I find myself wondering if it's a case of they don't know what they're doing or whether it's a case of they just haven't told us what they're doing. <laughs> and 
And I thought that was a really sort of interesting thing because you can, even in any organization, it can become very easy to be so busy doing what you're doing and assume that everybody else understands why you're doing what you're doing and that they all understand why they're doing what they're doing. But if you if you haven't taken the time to actually make sure that that communication is the whole way down, then, you know, how do you know, A, you've got the right people in the bus and that you're all heading in the same, you know, the same direction. I feel like the time in Canberra, that, that was probably one of the more organisational leadership sort of things that hit. And it could almost feel like, and particularly what we've dealt with in the last 18 months, is that actually we need to make sure somebody's still driving the bus. Yeah, absolutely. The other one is a more personal one, and that was uh, when I first came to Canberra, I worked for an engineering admiral by the name of Peter Purcell. I'm not sure if you ever came across Peter Purcell. Very smart man, extremely smart man. And as a as a younger officer, as I'm sure you 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 would recall, there was certain fear associated with with senior officers. You know, once you sort of started dealing with those captains and commodores and you know and admirals, it, it was like they were a different breed of people. And uh, he was my first real exposure on a one to one dealing with someone that of that sort of seniority on a day to day basis. What I got from Peter was the fact that he absolutely respected and expected his staff to have the skills and ability to do their work. Otherwise, they wouldn't be there. If they weren't good enough to be in those roles, they wouldn't be there. And he treated us as adults and gave us the uh, the ability, the scope, the permission to do our jobs you know, to the best of our ability without sort of any of that unnecessary micromanagement, without sort of that unnecessary trying to think of the right word that most people associate. People outside the military assume that all senior military officers are, are very firm and very harsh. And, uh, and that was not the case with him at all. And he really sort of showed me that it doesn't matter where you sit within an organization. You have good people around you, treat them as though they're good people around you, give them the opportunity to use the experience that you know that they have and the skill sets they, they have. And frankly, don't interfere if it's not your business to interfere with them. If you've given them a task, they can do it let them get on and do it. And I really enjoyed working for him. And I felt that um, at the same time, he probably age-wise, not that dissimilar, he reminded me a bit of my dad as well in that, you know, if you wanted to try something something new, he, he was quite happy to give you the permission to, you know, to do that within, again, within the bounds of what, what the role required without that level of unnecessary micromanagement, I think. Yeah. It's really interesting to think about those um, people we work with and the influences they have. And, and it's those leaders that create that space for us to be ourselves that actually have the most impact, I think. That's a great way of putting it, Martin, that, that space to be yourself, that space to actually explore what you have got the uh, ability to do. Yeah. We know it doesn't always go well. Uh, was there a Situation you can remember back in the Navy um, where you went, actually, I wish I'd done better at that or wish I'd made a different choice when it comes to leadership. Yeah, absolutely. Um, there's always sort of some things that you, you, you look back on and you think, I really probably should have thought a little bit longer about that. 
And it's hard sort of to pin down any one particular situation, but I, I think what what really sort of stuck in my mind about those times when I thought, oh, that probably didn't go as well as what it could have done was that I didn't back myself enough to ask the right questions in order to provide the right answers or to do, you know, the right thing. And I remember sort of doing some training in the US many years later um, when I was out of uniform and a phrase was used there by the person that was running this particular course and they, uh, which stuck in my mind and I wish I had heard it, you know, 15 years earlier. Um, and the phrase they used was understanding the difference between being brave and stupid. You know, being brave is knowing that even if it feels a little uncomfortable, you, you need to ask questions or you need to put forward your view or uh, learn a little bit more about a situation versus um, being stupid. And stupid can be just accepting what you're told even when you have got doubts about it or not asking those questions or, or not learning more more about it. And um, and I think sort of the scenarios that that I think of that I you know one in particular without sort of going into the details of it I was um duty officer at at a navy base um on a weekend and uh, there was um an incident that um I thought I had handled reasonably well and I had provided information to be passed on to the executive officer but foolishly, so this was my stupid, not brave bit, foolishly didn't confirm and check that that information had been passed on. So Monday morning came around and um, first thing Monday morning, I get a call from the executive officer who tore shreds off me over, over this because what I thought had happened hadn't actually passed on onto him and um you know quite rightly so i had a responsibility to ensure that that information got to him and stupidly thought that just by doing what i had done that you know it would magically appear in front of him probably should have explored that a little bit more asked a few more questions and and you know followed up to make sure he did actually find out about it and um that was certainly one of those one of those experiences where I thought, oh, I definitely don't want to go through that again. <laughs> I will definitely um, definitely make sure I understand understand and ensure that that I've carried my responsibilities right through to the end, and that I'm accountable for what I've done right through to the end. It's one of those organisational things, isn't it? Making sure that those that need to know actually get to know properly what we would call in the military a commander's critical information requirements, making sure those things actually are delivered to the person that needs them. Absolutely, absolutely. And that the right level of information and the right level of detail is provided. And, again, you know, without being sort of too flippant about those phrases, but, you know, we know what assuming does. As an executive coach, it's one of my key questions. What assumptions are you making right now? Yeah, exactly, yeah. yeah. And it's okay to make assumptions as long as they're shared assumptions, that everybody understands that is an assumption and it's an assumption because we're not in a position to know more about that um, as opposed to just it's an assumption because I've been too lazy to follow through and do what I should have done. Yeah, or not brave enough to go and ask. So you decide that you're going to leave full-time service in the Navy and transition. What was that like? It was 
scary and exciting and a little sad, a little sad and disappointing as well. You know, there were a lot of mixed emotions. The, the reason why I chose to leave was that um, I was a commander at the time that I left. So, you know, I'd made some progression, but that's okay. That's pretty good rank to get to, I sort of thought. But I was very conscious of the fact that, uh, and this comes back to, you know, my, my whole journey through the Navy, I was a pre-equal employment opportunity legislation act female officer. Now, for a lot of people, they're like, well, what does that, what does that mean? Well, that meant that in the early parts of my career, legislatively, I was limited in what my career options were. So by the time I got to the more senior part of my career, so as a commander, I wanted to go manage projects. I wanted to go do more general management things. But um, given that I hadn't, as a junior officer, been given the opportunity to be exposed to those things, and at that stage um, defence careers were very lock-stepped, so I hadn't, quite frankly, had the opportunity to tick certain boxes, even though at that by that time I'd gone through and put myself through a graduate diploma in technology management, I'd subsequently done a Master's of Business Administration, I hadn't ticked the expected boxes and therefore the opportunity to be in those roles wasn't presented to me. But I really wanted to do those sorts of things. So I'd had a great time in the Navy. I had learned a lot of things but I had got to a point where I recognised to do what I really wanted to do, I had to take the break and, and leave. I don't mean that to sound harsh against any individuals that I was working with or for at the time. It, that was just the environment. That was just the constraints. And um, and I know people outside Defence often look and go, well, you know, why, why couldn't you do that? Defence as a government organisation is bound by a lot of legislation and as well-meaning and as much as individuals might have liked to provide certain opportunities, there, there were some genuine legal constraints around what, what we could and couldn't do. So that, that's why I say in, in some respects it was a bit sad, it was a bit disappointing, but it was also exciting because it was at a time when the defence industry was really growing in Australia. So to put it into perspective, if you go back to sort of the, you know, probably the 90s, a lot of defence industry was offshore industry that just came to Australia to give us a ship or give us a plane or give us something else. And in the um, sort of mid to late 90s into the early 2000s, a lot of those offshore companies were starting to establish landed companies. The Australian industry, the government was getting right behind sort of building up Australian industry. So it was a real opportunity turning point, I think, in, in Australian industry that just coincided with with me sort of making that decision that if I wanted to do something more, I needed to move outside of, of uniform in order to do that. So that was the exciting part of it. And I picked up one of those opportunities with one of those growing Australian companies. And, you know, that was great. Your career since leaving the Navy has been in a couple of parts. And uh, as you said, it was the first part of that was sort of in a um, Australian defence industry. What were the things you learned as you stepped into that corporate career about leadership and, and how th to make things work? I guess one of the, one of the first things I learned was that we bring from uniform 
a range of skills, but one size doesn't fit all. And, you know, leadership to me and, and management more generally, you need to have a toolbox. You, you need to have uh, a range of things that you can dip into for different situations and, you know, and different scenarios. And so you come out of uniform with a range of these skills, but you can't assume that a private organization or even a public service organization for that matter um, operates the same way that a uniform organization does. So absolutely leverage the skills that you've got, leverage the leadership skills that you've got, um, but be aware that it's it's not exactly the same. Even more practical skills, uh, not that leadership isn't a practical skill, but I mean even more technical skills that you, you thought you knew how to do in uniform are different in the context of a, a private organisation. And a really simple example of that is that I came out of uniform having managed a number of areas and having managed budgets. And I thought I, I thought I was pretty good financially. I moved into a managing a particular part of the business that I, that I went to. And all of a sudden I didn't just have a budget. I had a profit and loss statement and I had, I had only ever experienced a government organization where we didn't make profit. We managed budgets. So. Yeah, even even something as simple as that actually took headspace adjustments to, you know, adjust to a different context of actually managing finances, and managing people and and um, leading the organisation was exactly the same. Certainly, a lot of skills that came across, but it was a different context. So, filling up the toolbox was really important for me. It's almost that. Um you can take what you've got in the military, but you've also got to develop that broader, deep generalist skills to actually be effective in that new role. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, mm-hmm. And I think the other thing too, from a private organisation point of view, particularly a growing organisation, is that you don't always have all of the assets that you need to take the next step. So, and, you know, don't get me wrong, defence is uniform. Organisations are very good at um, making the most of what they have, doing the best that they can with what they have. What's that phrase we always hated hearing? Doing more with less. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And, and whatever attempts we've made to get away from that have no, not really got No, it's anyone. still – I still hear it all the time, you know, doing doing more with less, not, not having enough sort of resources um, to do that. But as part of a, one of the advantages of actually moving into what was a growing organisation that was very much in that space of having to actually um, execute before they necessarily had the resources, the capacity to execute, was that some of that, you know, all hands to the wheel type environment, again, gave me the opportunity to put my hand to so many things that I might not otherwise have even thought that I had the skill set, you know, to do. And that breadth of exposure when you're back leading an organisation where you've got so many different functions and so many different areas within the business... I don't consider myself to be a particular expert in any of those areas, but I know enough and have enough experience to understand what the individuals in those areas are doing, what they're trying to do, and and frankly, to sort of empathise with them as well when things aren't going quite as smoothly as it can be. And um, 
everybody likes to be understood and appreciated. And, you know, that, that was a good piece of learning, I think, for me moving into that that corporate world. I don't have to be an expert. I get the right people on the bus. But if I can have at least an understanding of what it feels like to walk in their shoes, um, people really appreciate that. You've had a number of strategic roles at higher levels of organisations, both in defence industry and then moving on to uh, association representation of, uh, of industries. What do you think the characteristics of strategic leadership are and, and what's most important there? I think that that setting setting a direction that you believe in is really important. Um, you know, we, we talked before about actually setting a direction that you can cascade down and communicate to people because, as you said, Martin, they like to know where the bus is going. They like to know there's a driver on the, on, on the bus, you know, without a doubt. Mm. But people, we're not idiots, you know. <laughs> People, people can see through, see through leaders who don't believe in, in what they're espousing or don't believe in where they're driving the bus. And, and I think from a, from a strategic point of view, it's one thing to set a direction. It's one thing to set that strategy, but it has to be something you believe in. And, you know, we don't all believe in the same things. So I, I think one of the important things from a strategic leadership point of view is that, you have to be on the right bus for you as well. You can do a lot of things as a leader, but if you don't genuinely believe in where that's going, your team's not not going to be, you know, right behind you. And I remember when I moved out of defence industry and um, I went into the, the community health sector, basically, in those member organisations, one of somebody asked me a question at one point. You know, that's such a, a different field, defence to community health, and I said, "Well, well, it is." But I joined defence because, uh, as cliche as it may sound, I, I did have an underlying desire to want to do something for the country. And most people who join defence do actually have that more altruistic. Um, characteristic behind them of wanting to contribute to society. So when I moved across into the community health area, I, I felt a lot of the similar sorts of characteristics. You know, it, it's about supporting the community. It's about supporting our country. It's about ensuring that individuals are well cared for and protected. So there were actually a lot of sort of similar characteristics. So even though what was ultimately being delivered was very different, um, I still found that I had belief in what they were actually trying to do and it sort of set within my personal value set as well. So I think at a, a strategic level, anything you do, if you're taking on that level of responsibility, you have to have some belief in it. You know, you, it has to be something that you can genuinely say, yes, I've set a direction here, I understand the strategy, but I actually believe that there's a purpose and there's a value in actually doing that. Yeah. It's more than skin in the game, isn't it? It's actually a deep, yeah. Yeah. Well, for me, for me it is, you know. I'm not sort of saying other people can't just go in and do work and be very happy to do that, but, you know, I personally have to have – um. Yeah, so it has to align with my values and I, I have to have a, a genuine personal yeah. desire to make a contribution to it. So what would be your best advice for that person who 
is actually looking to take on more responsibility or lean more into leadership every day? Probably one of my key pieces of advice is um, don't be afraid that you don't know everything. You don't need to know everything. That's that's not what being a leader necessarily is reliant on. You need to take the time to learn about your team and learn where their expertise sits and what each of those individuals might contribute so that you can make the most of what they can contribute. That that I think is um uh, is, is really important for anyone that's moving into any level of leadership is that you don't need to know everything. You Just because you're the leader doesn't mean you have to be doing everything. In fact, you shouldn't be doing everything. I, I think that's a critical piece of advice no matter what level of the organisation that you are moving into at a leadership level, whether you're a chair of a board or whether you're just being promoted to, you know, team leader of, of a local retail organisation. It's it's still the same principle. So. And what have been some of the best resources that have helped you and supported you in your development as a leader? One of the opportunities I had um, after I joined the corporate world was to do training in Six Sigma. And I'm not suggesting that, you know, everybody needs to do that sort of training. But um, for those that don't know, Six Sigma is a, um, a methodology for um, looking at business problems and, and basically sort of analysing with a view to coming up with in improvements for whatever those problems might be. And it comes with um, certainly when I did the training, there was a real opportunity to learn how to think differently, to think more broadly uh, around particular scenarios and to take the time to understand the problem before you jump to a solution. It's a bit human nature to want to have the answer before you almost even understand what the question is. Um, and, you know, if, if someone comes into your office and it's, oh, we've got a problem, there's a natural sort of reaction, I think, as a, particularly when you're learning about being a leader and a manager to think, oh, oh, I must have the answer now because someone's come in with their problem. When in actual fact, you know, the the first thing you, you should be doing is better understanding what the problem is to ensure that you're coming up with the right answer to it, um, that the right person is coming up with the right answer because it might not even be you that has the right answer um, as opposed to, you know, potentially just band-aiding something that just you know, becomes a problem again sort of later on. And the the philosophy behind Six Sigma was around understanding what your current state really is, understanding what your future state needs to look like, and then using that analysis to actually set an appropriate pathway to sort of solve the problem. And that, I, I guess, that whole fundamental way of thinking was such an important light bulb moment for me through the rest of my career as I've sort of gone into more sort of senior roles because even strategically, you know, before when I said about setting a vision and a mission and then having a strategy to go forward to it, you can't set a vision if you don't understand where you are. So even setting a company vision is actually a problem-solving exercise that you need to look at in terms of, well, where are you currently and where do you want to be? When you can articulate those two things, then you're better equipped to actually understand how you get from point A to point 
point B. So that was a, a really important developmental opportunity for me that I've carried across almost everything else I've done. And in terms of expanding my career opportunities, a, a lot of the work that I do these days and have certainly done in more recent years has been around um, business transformation type activities. And you can't transform a business if you don't know where you currently are. If you don't know what your current problem is, how do you know how you get out of where you are to where you want to go, you know, next. So I just, I just can't, you know, I can't understate how important that training was for me in terms of providing me with that type of insight into problem solving. Can't help but think that that discipline actually, and links back to what we were talking about before about assumptions and mm. when we're in business and we're in the current state, we can often assume what we've got to do. We can often be drawn just to think, well, best practice will fix that or we'll go and find best practice from somebody else. But the reality is in a complex world, we actually need to do that kind of level of analysis and that discipline around being comfortable with uncertainty and, and ambiguity about where we're at. Absolutely. And, and I think your use of the word discipline is really important there too, Martin, because often these problems come to you under short timeframes and there's that time pressure to come up with an answer. Well, you're leading the organization. You tell us what to do. We need to have this solved by tomorrow. <laughs> Just tell us what you want to do. We, you, you do have to, you do have to be a little disciplined to actually say, let's take, we may not have a lot of time, but let's take the time we have got to actually genuinely understand where we're sitting to try and validate some of those assumptions or to clarify some of the unknowns so that when we do take the step off, we know we're actually stepping in the right direction. And and I think um, your background as a seaman officer, you'll appreciate this analogy. It's a bit like a navigation error in that if you're heading, you think you're heading here, but really you want to be heading there. Way back here, the gap's only this big. But before you know it, the gap's this big, you know, it's completely off the screen. So taking the time back here to make sure that you are actually heading in the direction or if you are a little uncertain that that gap's not too big as you progress and that it's small enough that you can make the adjustments and the cost of solving that gap in in the future is far greater than the cost taking of taking the time now to actually make sure you understand what it is yeah. that you're trying to address and what exactly the problem is that you're trying to solve and that leadership characteristic around that i think is actually the ability to withstand pressure to have solved the problem now yes yeah yeah which, which actually sort of just triggers another thought in my mind one of my favorite words from a leadership point of view is why. You know, somebody comes to you, I, I have a problem, this needs to be dealt with, or uh, somebody has said that we should be doing this differently. Well, my first question, politely, of course, is always why? You know, why do you want to do that? Why do you think we need to change it from what it is? Or why don't you want to do that? Too often, uh, people take at face value a request or a complaint or a, or a concern and haven't explored further what actually is the root cause of what that is. And again, through the Six Sigma training, there were a, a range of tools that, that I was exposed to. And one of the most simple of those is... <laughs> It's quite funny because I always think of my kids because that's where you best learn this tool is um, a, a very simple tool called Five Whys. When you're trying to understand from a root cause analysis point of view, when you're trying to understand what the root cause of a problem is, 
it has actually been statistically proven that five whys will get you fundamentally down to that root cause. So, you know, somebody says, we need to do this. Why do we need to do it? Well, we need to do it because of A. Well, why do we need to do it because of A? Well, because of and by the time you sort of drill down to sort of four or five of those whys, you're actually getting down to what is genuinely, you know, the, the root cause and can be better placed then to address it, that problem, as opposed to addressing the symptom that, that comes up the top here. But again, that, that does take a little bit of discipline and it, as you say, potentially sometimes you're, you're pushing back and keeping in mind, even when you're in a senior leadership role, you're reporting to somebody. You might be a CEO, but you're probably reporting to a board. So that bravery piece comes in there because sometimes the why is actually to the board. The board might be saying to you, we need to do this. Be brave enough to ask the why question no matter who it's coming from. I love it, Pam. Be brave uh, and not stupid. (laughs) Well, Pam, look, it's been a a delight to have the conversation. And uh, you know what? I'm always fascinated where conversations will go, particularly around leadership, particularly based upon somebody like you who's had a a very broad experience of that from both the military and also in a corporate career. So, look, thank you so much for being on the show. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, Mark. Well, look, we're going to finish off with some rapid-fire questions. Um, So what I'd like you to do is to fill in the blank. And uh, so we've got a couple of questions. The first question is leadership is blank? So I think to to me leadership is is supporting people, it's providing them direction, it's not telling them what to do. What's your go-to book on leadership? Maybe now? I've mentioned that before um, and that is um, Good to Great is is one of my, my favourite books. I, I love the getting the right people on the bus. I wish I'd known blank earlier in my career. I wish I'd known that I didn't need to know everything. <laughs> How good would that have been? (laughs) So you get a call uh, from a team member, a crisis has just erupted in your organisation, company. What are your first words to that person? I think probably my first words are always around just sit down and tell me what's happened. And, yeah, sit down, tell me what's happened because until I can understand that, I'm not going to react. Yeah. Yeah, great. And last one is the the go-to quote on leadership that has had the most influence on your leadership today. Yeah, I'm I'm not really good at remembering quotes, but um I do like stories and I think one of my one of my favorite stories that always sticks in my head actually came out of one of Jim Collins's books and it was a uh, from a senior leader who was um heading up a major airline in Europe and had gone through a transformation and he had been interviewed actually and I'd read the interview and he was actually going off on an extended holiday at a time that looked pretty critical from a business point of view and, you know, they said to him, "Uh, can you do that? And he went, well, I've got a team around me. If I can't trust the team to do the job that they are, they're there to do, then whether I'm in town or not is not going to actually save the business. And he went off on holidays and I thought, that is so true. Get the right team, trust them to do what they are there to do. And you know what? I think I've heard that in much of what you've had to say today about leadership. So, Pam, thank you again. It's been a delight, a pleasure, and uh, look forward to catching up when we next have an opportunity, uh, perhaps in Canberra or up here in Brisbane. Absolutely. Love to, Martin. Thanks. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Frontline to Boardroom. So grateful that you could be with us. For more on how you can step up to leadership every day, be sure to visit us at martinbrooker.com, where you can subscribe to the show to be notified every time an episode drops. 
And if you found value in this episode, we'd love it if you'd share it with a friend. Looking forward to being here with you next week. And remember, sometimes you need to drive it like you stole it.